everybody. Welcome to Congress Two Beers In. I'm Matt Glassman, Senior Fellow at the Government Affairs Institute. I'm joined today by Mark Harkins, also Senior Fellow at the Government Affairs Institute. Laura Blessing, another Senior Fellow at the Government Affairs Institute. Hi, and our special guest, Tim Alberta from Political Magazine, the uh, illustrious Tim Alberta who has brought with us a variety of beers. I'm just kidding. He brought exactly two beers. They were the Bat Blue Light, and Tim is forever endeared to my heart for that. Because go, I shared one with you. Yes, go Canadian beer. Everyone makes fun of me, but Tim knows the truth, that this is the good stuff. I don't know. I'm drinking Elliot Ness, Amber Lager from Great Lakes Brewing Company, and it's making me think of Donovan's win over mm. Graham, man. So Tim is from Michigan. Spirit. We picked up a bunch of Michigan beer. Mark, what do you have? I got the, the Michigan beer I picked up was the Oberon from Bell's, because I figured it's, it's summer. Yeah, and we got to go wheat, so I didn't want to go with the, I mean, Bell's Too Hearted, obviously, is the great stuff, but for right now, the Oberon will get us through. Yeah, and, I'm, and, I'm going untouchable. And two Bell's Too Hearted will push you to sleep. Yeah, it will. <laughs> or at least under the table. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're going to start this week with a piece we got in our mailbag, a question from a listener. Uh, as you know, you can always reach us at congress2beersin at gmail.com. That's congress, the number two, beersin at gmail.com. And uh, our correspondent writes this. Hey, two beers in. I love the show. Thank you. Obviously. Yeah, absolutely. Who, who doesn't love the show? <laughs> uh, looking forward to every episode. I want you to spend a little more time, however, elaborating on one thing. Every time you mention Paul Ryan, you say he's a bad speaker, having a hard time being the speaker, and you all just laugh like it's so obvious. Uh, and then you talk about Boehner as if he was a somewhat better speaker, or at least got better at it. But to us outsiders, none of this, none of this is clear. In fact, I'm listening to your show precisely because I want to know why Brian is a bad speaker and how some new speaker might be better and why. So that is sort of the perfect question for uh, Tim Alberta. So Tim Alberta, give us your thoughts. Uh, what makes Paul Ryan a bad speaker? What makes a good speaker? And or what do makes you a bad consider speaker? that? Yeah. Well, yeah, look, I think that in the age of fragmented and weakened parties and uh, certainly as Ryan said to me a couple of years ago for a piece I was writing, how, how Congress today is essentially a coalition government uh, just without the efficiency of a parliamentary system, which is a quote that sort of burns in my memory. I think that all speakers have to be graded on something of a scale because the job is so different than it has been prior to, I would say, eight to ten years ago when, when really the institution of Congress, I think, began going undergoing some fundamental changes. All of that said... I think to be a good speaker, you have to have a handle on a couple of different things. You have to have a handle on process. You have to have a handle on people. Paul Ryan did not want to become speaker for a variety of reasons. First and foremost, because he was a policy guy. He was not a process guy. He was a policy guy. And if that sounds well-worn and cliche at this point, I'm sorry, but it's just true. This is a guy who, when he came to Congress, set his sights on the Ways and Means Committee. He wound up chairing budget, of course, before he went to Ways and Means. But he was always somebody who was um, oriented towards policymaking. Getting process done in the modern Congress has a lot to do, arguably more to do, with politics than policy. Politics, internal or external, have never been a strong suit for Ryan. Now, he's wound up being a phenomenal fundraiser. Uh, he's raised more money for the Republican Party than anybody could have ever imagined or, or expected. A lot of that has to do with his ability to tap into the Romney network that he was introduced to in 2012. So I wouldn't make too much of that. Without going down any rabbit holes, I think Ryan does not have a great grasp on the politics that inform con congressional process circa 2018. I think some of Ryan's closest friends in Congress will, will tell you that also. They will, they will speak to that. Um, 
Ryan, in their minds, still does get a little bit of a discount here. He still gets a little bit of a benefit of the doubt because, A, he's relatively new to the job. B, he had never worked in the leadership before, so it was jumping straight into the deep end. And, and C, this is somebody who not only did not not want the job, but somebody who I think came into the job with a set of expectations, namely that because he was really the only consensus figure remaining in the House Republican Conference who was able to uh, get the requisite number of votes to become speaker in the wake of John Boehner's departure, Ryan, I think, came into the job <clears throat> pardon me, with an expectation that the uh, elements in the Republican conference that had made life so difficult on Boehner that they would be easier on him, not only because he was perhaps more ideologically aligned with them, but because now that they had cleaned house and gotten rid of Boehner, that this was, you know, turning the page, it was a new start, a blank slate, however you want to put it, and Ryan felt like uh, these guys would be willing to give him the benefit of the doubt, when in fact, these guys, I think, have been much harder on Ryan than they ever were on Boehner, because in their mind, because Ryan is more closely ideologically aligned with them, and more specifically because Ryan made some rather explicit promises about opening up the congressional process, about doing away with this sort of hyper-centralized model of governing in the House, Boehner had never made any promises like that. So because Ryan promised a new kind of speakership, I think the expectations were heightened to a point where he was never going to be able to meet them. And frankly, he hasn't come close. Uh, the process has been even more closed down than it was under Boehner. And I think the shine came off Ryan pretty quickly because of that and for some other reasons. So I think both in terms of understanding the policy, uh, excuse me, I think in terms of understanding the process and in terms of understanding the people, namely some of the House Freedom Caucus members who give him so much heartburn. And you said these guys, is that, that's yeah, who I right, think it's is. Right. those guys. Yeah, I, think he's, I, I think on both of those fronts, he has, he has fallen short of expectations, and that is why his speakership has not been terribly successful in the eyes of his detractors. And I think in one case where you would see this really play itself out was in the House Intelligence Committee and how it's trying to get documents from things and the way Devin Nunez has gone forward. And this is a place where the speaker really needs to insert himself. I mean, whenever you're dealing with intel and the in the executive branch, the speaker can't just let that go off. He needs to be part of it. He really has just let that go off and let it fester. That's an excellent point. My first uh, answer was so long that I hesitate to jump back in. But quickly to, to that point, I was having a conversation with, with one of the speaker's closest friends on Capitol Hill the other day. And we were talking about sort of the early stages of, of, of considering his legacy. And he said... Look, I think the one thing Paul would acknowledge is that he let Nunes run wild for far too long, and he did not have his eye on the ball as far as the Intel Committee was concerned. He said, as you've noticed lately, Nunes has been very quiet. That's because Paul has gotten back involved, and he, and he realized that he needed to much earlier, and he has acknowledged privately that that was a huge mistake, and it was. I mean, you cannot let one of the few remaining committees in Congress that was genuinely considered to be uh, nonpartisan and or bipartisan you can't allow it to, yeah. to, to sort of spiral out of control the way that it has. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Mean, there are so ahead. many different ways we, we, we could go with Ryan and different examples. I mean, and to, to kind of cut it both ways, I, he, he has all the factional problems that John Boehner had um, with, you know, hyped expectations that have not materialized. Uh, but he's also, you know, he's, he's trying to be speaker in, uh, with the Trump administration, with an executive uh, who is uh, volatile on policy preferences, um, that then affect the electoral outcomes of 
uh, his uh, Republicans in Congress, which is a very difficult position to be in and is currently playing out in a major way with immigration right now, which we should we could t- definitely talk about. Um, I mean, I think so. I think some of this is is out of Ryan's control, particularly the piece with with uh, with Trump. But you know, something that that struck me as unusual and why I'm so happy that you're here to talk to us today is this early announcement of his retirement, which you broke in December. Um, seemed to be a really unusual and and unnecessarily harmful move to the Republican conference. Yeah, well, I think Ryan's early retirement announcement was for him the lesser of two evils. He was never going to serve more than just this one full term as speaker. He made that clear to people last fall. But for him, it was a decision between do I tell my constituents in Wisconsin's first district that I'm running for re-election and win, and then turn around and say, never mind, just kidding, I actually want to go home. He felt he felt like that would have been a betrayal of his constituents. Sure. On the other hand, does he announce early, and he leaves a lot of his colleagues hanging out to dry, he creates a very uneasy situation in the conference where Steve Scalise and Kevin McCarthy are sort of nipping at each other behind the scenes, and there are factions forming. What's very interesting is that actually when John Boehner had decided he was going to leave in 2014, his top three lieutenants drafted a memo for him in which they outlined the different scenarios under which he could announce his retirement. And option A in that memo was to announce in the spring, well ahead of the midterm elections, that he was going to retire. And Boehner, when he read the memo, looked at his lieutenants and said, are you guys out of your minds? Why the hell would I do that? Why would I want to be a lame duck speaker for seven or eight months? It makes no sense. I would lose all my leverage. Uh, It's going to create chaos in the conference. And of course, I think we've begun to see that exact same thing, exactly what he predicted for himself. We've seen that unfold after Ryan's announcement. I mean, I I think this goes back to what makes a good or bad speaker. This is a type of politics that's a unique type of politics. It's coalition management. It's, It's more like running a city machine than it is being a policy guy or being an elections guy in the United States Congress. And there's, I think there's kind of this thing that developed around Gingrich where people have in their heads that like Gingrich is like a typical speaker, someone who has this vision or at least his ideas in his head is going to lead people forward by dragging them there. And that's right. not the classic good speaker. And I don't think Gingrich is a particularly good speaker anyway. You know, Agreed. it's coalition management and keeping a caucus together and, and helping them achieve what they want to achieve. But, you know, the, the leadership possibilities are on the margins. Um, I mean, I looked back a a little bit on this historically to see if speakers had announced early because it does sound unusual, right? Do you know when Tip O'Neill announced that he was not going to run for speaker again? Three months into the Congress. Really? Three months into the Congress. And then it took Jim Wright another month to be able to coalesce enough support behind him to say that he was going to be the next speaker. It's fascinating. So the, the tax bill in 85 and 86 was being negotiated by a lame duck speaker and a lame duck president. It's amazing. I mean, you just, you, but it goes back to what you were saying, Matt, that it was a different kind of politics, and, and Tip O'Neill was a very different kind of politician, yeah. right? He had yeah. that ability to glad hand. He knew, he built, he de- dealt with the Democratic coalitions that he had to deal with and held them together with the Southern Democrats and the Northern Democrats. And he, he had a few more votes to play with, don't get me wrong. But he knew how to do that. He knew all politics was local, but he was able to take it local to Congress as well and work with all of those guys. It's much harder now, I think. There's no question, and I think two things jump out. First, uh, to, to the point about the, the votes that he had to play with, I was making this point in Laura's class the other day, to which I spoke. Paul Ryan having a 23-vote margin 
to us sounds like it's not that much because you've got some three dozen members in the Freedom Caucus and therefore they exercise this effective veto power over the leadership. But really, by and a historical, a block too. and they, if they in fact vote as a block, yeah. But I think by historical standards, a 23 or a 24 earlier in the Congress a vote margin is pretty significant. I think most I think yeah. most speakers would be would be doing cartwheels and and they would be thinking that they can get an awful lot done on just a party line basis. I think. That speaks to the second thing that I think of when you're talking about O'Neill, Mark, and, and, and working with Reagan even as a lame duck, which is that the power of the party was so much greater back then. It was really so much greater even 10 or 12 years ago. I think you have seen the systematic weakening of the, of the two-party system in a way where when you see Joe Crowley go down in New York 14, you, you're not even that surprised anymore. Right, right, you're you're right. really not, right? right like right. there was all this talk in, oh, in New York. Lost. I talked to a friend at the Times and he's like, you know, look at man, we, we talked to people locally. I did some looking around and we were told essentially that, you know, there's a machine here for Crowley. They've got it locked down. The guy's kind of a party boss. He's a 10 term incumbent. Why would we worry about him? It's very eerily similar to the Eric Cantor situation. Right. But the party power does not exist the way that it used to. The dynamic is just so incredibly different now, and I think we haven't yet fully wrapped our heads around that. Yeah, I mean, I also think I also think Ryan is in a particularly impossible situation. Yes, he has no experience in leadership. Yes, it's not his thing. Yes, he didn't necessarily want the job, but he is also a uh, leader of a party in Congress while the president is the same party, except for the president who doesn't seem to want to lead the Congress. And that's an extremely unusual situation. Or lead the party. Under the mm-hmm. modern presidency, right? In most situations, a speaker aligned with the president would be taking agenda marching orders in pretty strict fashion from the White House. And that's just not happening right now. Right. For better or worse, the legislative agenda is being devised outside of the White House and sometimes in opposition to the White House. And that puts right. Ryan in an almost impossible situation, uh, particularly when the White House starts trying to undercut what they're doing or ham-handedly undercuts what they're doing with the factionalism sitting under him. He's got you know, a inexperienced president above him. He's got a divided caucus underneath him. And that makes for a tough context. I still think Boehner did it a lot better. No, I agree with that. With that context, and yeah. one thing is, I think I think Ryan has, you know, from my perspective, has a certain amount of pride where he doesn't want to take the fall for cutting deals and having people be angry at him. It doesn't seem that way, at least in a way. Boehner was perfectly fine being a whipping boy, uh, and just taking the fall for the deals he needed to cut. Now, I also think the Freedom Caucus has gotten more strident and uh, hardened their positions but, since but Ryan they, became speaker. Don't they rush into the void? I mean, is that what they're doing? I mean, they have this power because the power is available for them to take. Right. Ryan is not the strong guy who's trying to, you know, Boehner threw two people off the rules committee when they sure. voted against him to be mm-hmm. speaker. Sure. You know, Ryan gave up power to become speaker. I mean, I'm wondering if, you know, it's a chicken and egg question. Is it that that the Freedom Caucus has taken over or is it that the, the leadership has ceded? Right. I mean, they're just, they're in an environment where, you know, uh, there's obvious weakness here um, and that they can take advantage of. Um, and, you know, I, I do think that Ryan is in a very difficult position, but he's, he's made a number of unnecessary mistakes uh, that has worsened it. Uh, the early retirement is one. Um, you know, failing to, to try to build some, something on immigration that would protect people um, and dealing with the White House in a better manner on this is another. Um, that discharge petition came awfully close to succeeding. Um, awfully, awfully close. And, you know, notably the uh, leadership-created bill failed by not only a very large margin, but a larger margin than the Goodlatte 
uh, more conservative fix. A, a far larger margin. Far larger margin. Votes, it right? wasn't even close. 120 votes in favor? Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they lost uh, 40 Republicans to vote for the Goodlatte, more conservative immigration uh, bill that was uh, voted on earlier. And they lost 112, I believe, Republicans that voted on the House leadership uh, bill this Wednesday. The last time I remember so, something that was leadership went down like this was the really was lost the, uh, was the uh, Democrats in '90 on the first budget agreement when they ended up in the no new taxes mm. breaking right. the no new taxes pledge in 1990. The Democrats got about 120 votes. The first budget resolution they tried to pass. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> think about incredible. that yeah. for a minute. That's incredible. Right. They ended up with three votes and they finally right. got it. Well, and to have to go back I mean, that they're, far they're I mean, is significant. I mean, they're, well, right. One, one thing is that you know. To the degree they had difficulty with the kind of straightforward Republican agenda of health care repeal and taxes, that's one thing. But the introduction of these Trump issues that sort of cut across the parties on trade and immigration just makes it exponentially harder uh, because there are no strict partisan coalitions on these things. Well, I mean, you don't have, look, I think Paul Ryan for, for much of his career could have been considered an ideologue. And I think it, for a time he would have considered himself an ideologue. I do think that there was a very interesting sort of transition phase of Ryan's career after the 2012 presidential election when he returned from the campaign trail as Mitt Romney's running mate. And he very quickly and very noticeably, very conspicuously uh, modulated his, not only his positions, but sort of his rhetoric. And, and, and he seemed to be a very different guy after the 2012 race. And he's talked pretty openly about that. He took a number of votes when he came back on everything from Violence Against Women Act to raising the debt ceiling without any attached uh, preconditions. And conservatives started looking at him sideways a little bit. What's interesting, all of that said, is that Ryan still, I think, has a relatively strict ideological framework through which he views the world and through which he views policy. And he, to your point earlier, is now working with a president who is not ideological in the least. And when you get to an issue like immigration, when Donald Trump has effectively said to Paul Ryan, to Mitch McConnell, to Mark Meadows, to Ted Cruz, when he's told all of these different interest groups inside the GOP different things on immigration. When he gives Lindsey Graham <laughs> yeah. an answer one day and gives Rand Paul an entirely different answer the next day on what he wants out of a bill, how do you as a congressional leader possibly try to cobble together the votes necessary to pass? So th that's the only sense in which I give Ryan a bit of a, of a break yeah, here. Sure. And McConnell yeah, for the same difficult. reason, because not only are they trying to hold together the, 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 these very fragmented caucuses, but they've also got no leadership, to your point earlier, Matt, from the president. Right. And, and when all of these members of Congress are terrified of crossing the president because they view his cult following in their backyards as a threat to their own careers, so they don't want to get on the wrong side of him, but they don't know which side is the wrong side. So I want to pivot. I mean, this is not something we necessarily talked about beforehand, but I want to pivot because, Tim, I know you've done a lot of, uh, of writing and thinking about various Senate members, too. And there's a huge thing that's now up in the Senate, mm -hmm. right, uh, with a new other Supreme Court justice coming up. And you're talking about the fragmented caucus and the ability of trying to hold it together. How do you think this is going to work with McConnell trying to hold this caucus together with Trump being the guy who's the leader? Boy, so I think to answer that, we go back really quickly to 2014 because 2016 is going to get all of the attention in the history books for this moment of unified Republican government and over, overhauling the judiciary and all these things. But if Republicans don't take back the Senate in 2014, 
They can't block Obama's nominee when Antonin Scalia dies to replace him. And without that vacancy hanging over the 2016 presidential election, I don't think President Trump wins. I don't think that enough reluctant Republican voters are mobilized to get him across the finish line. So all of that counterfactual aside, I think what's fascinating even more so about 2014 is not just that McConnell, within I think 90 minutes of Scalia dying, announced that he was going to hold the line and that there would be no vote to replace him. But McConnell, over the ensuing, I think it was eight and a half months, was able to hold the Republican caucus together on that line. And that's actually incredibly impressive when you think about all the pressure he was under, not just from the left, not just from the media, but from moderate Republicans in his caucus who thought that it was bad politics, who did not like the optics of it. He was getting and they were going to lose anyway because the, Clinton was going to be president. Exactly. And, right. so, and they were saying, why wouldn't we just rather have a more moderate uh, uh, justice right. like Garland, right? right? So I think that is instructive considering how McConnell was able to hold the Collins and the Murkowskis of the world at bay during that episode. I do think that that's instructive because if he was able to do it then, I think there is a lot of optimism among Republicans, among conservatives, that he will be able to deliver them because they have no margin for error. If McCain can't come back, they can't lose a single vote. And I think there is optimism, guarded optimism, around McConnell that he will once again be able to hold the line with Collins and Murkowski and deliver the 50 and then Pence cast Well, here's the thing. It's not just him holding the line. You've got, what, like 10 Democrats in states that Trump won that are up for re-election, three of which voted for Gorsuch. For Gorsuch. I mean, that, that's you know, what, like, the, the, are they going to be a unified flank? Like, uh, I don't that, know. I don't know. It's, so, it's a big question mark, I, I, I think... I think in the, I think in the, in the end, this nominee, whoever it is, ends up with fifty-three to fifty-six votes. Do you really? I think they hold both Murkowski and Collins, and I think they almost undoubtedly get Jones, Highcamp, Mansion, and Donnelly, and maybe McCaskill too, although probably not. I, I think, and maybe Tester, maybe. and if McCain comes back, he'll vote too. I, I think the Republican Party is, is largely built on a complex about the Supreme Court that they've been burned historically by decisions, starting with Roe, but heading all the way through, uh, you know, gay marriage and, and all the rest. And uh, also that they've been burned by bad judicial choices, be it Souter or others that have turned out poorly for them. And that, unlike liberals, they are squarely fixated on making sure that the court ends up how they want. Mm-hmm. And Murkowski and Collins can talk a big game and they can vote against the health care bill. But I think when push comes to shove, the fact that they're nominally pro-choice doesn't mean anything, and that they're going to toe the line here. And this age kind of, on this person, plus or minus forty-eight <laughs> on the court. Yeah. yeah. Well, how, take, uh, the, take the under. Take, take the under. Yeah. Mike Lee's forty-seven, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Oh boy. So that's, that's interesting. So no, I, I think you have a point. I mean, this, but this has like electoral juice in a way that other issues are failing to deliver on. This, this yeah. unifies conservatives yeah, yeah. in a way. I, and I, and funding. I don't know. I don't know what Collins and Murkowski think privately, but I think they would both be. Uh, if they were this, you know, it's so the big question is if they were to vote no on this, would you still get over the top with the Democrat conservative Democrats? Right. So I mean, go back to Clarence question. Thomas, right? Clarence yeah. Thomas, eleven yeah. Democrats voted for Clarence yeah. Thomas, two Republicans voted against. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Well, he won fifty-two forty-eight. I yeah. mean, well, so a couple of things. I mean, first, yeah, that conventional wisdom that that court appointments and specifically Supreme Court appointments are more mobilizing for the Republican base than for the Democrat base. I think it's absolutely true, and that's yeah. borne out yeah. over, over a couple of decades at least. I think what is very interesting is that in the era of Trump, as we're seeing, 
a great deal of transition and disruption in our political system. Now, a lot of norms and conventions being challenged and things changing. I actually think that is one of them that could be changing. I, I've seen a lot just in the last 72 hours among democratic thought leaders, intellectuals, academics, uh, political types who are who have been since 16 and really have now sort of turbocharged the argument that if Democrats are going to retake majorities, retake the White House, then we need to be as energized in the base about the courts as Republicans have been for the last generation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that obviously yeah. it's easier said than done, but I think that if in fact there is really a concerted effort to make sure that the, that the left is mobilized and really galvanized around the issue of the courts, then for that reason only, I actually can't see any number of Democrats voting. So I think what happens is this. I think you've probably got one of two scenarios. I think that either it passes with 50 or it passes with 55, but I don't think you're going to see just one or two Democrats put themselves out on the limb. I think that they recognize that the only way they have a prayer in some of these states, even though they're red states, even though they're Trump states, is to have every single Democratic voter in that state turn out for them. And if they toe the line with Trump for a nominee who could potentially help overturn Roe v. Wade, I just don't think there's a prayer. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I mean... I'm just assuming that if Jones has re-election in mind, he has to vote for this nominee. And Jones is a special case, of course, sure. because he he he, yeah, he, he might he might yeah. lose his next election with 32 percent of the vote. Yeah. Sure. Who knows? But does he? That's the question. Does he even have? Right. Does he have? So I think it's Jones mind. is very different than yeah. say Mansion or Heitkamp yes. or, or Donnelly. Right. I I do think so. I, I wrote a piece yesterday about how the left that thinks they can block this procedurally is crazy, and I assume the Democratic strategy is going to be. A electoral strategy here where they're going to accept that this is probably going to pass uh, either with 50 votes or with 55 votes and they're going to try and build a narrative about what this means to fire up their base and I agree that the the move on the left now is to start trying to get their voters to take the court as seriously as Republicans have for a generation yep for a generation I, I mean I remember when when my wife went to go vote in 2008 the big question at the time and she she was not a big fan of Barack Obama's she was really was a Clinton supporter in 08, so it was hard for her to go vote. But she didn't really want to vote for McCain either. But I had my nine-year-old teed up for this. And as he got ready to go to the school bus, to go to elementary school, he said, Mommy, remember, it's about the judges. Wow. Swear wow. to God. You tell the story oh, right now. Yeah, poor kid. Yeah, I know, right? Watch cartoons. I'm so, <laughs> my God. And so my wife was like, ugh. And so what ended up happening is she took my five-year-old into the voting booth with her. And the five-year-old actually pushed the button for Barack Obama. Because at that point, it was, it was electronic voting in Maryland. And so that was the big deal. She couldn't push the button, but she let, she let the five-year-old do it. I mean, I, 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 I do think that we're going down... Yeah, voter fraud. Sorry, I know. It's... I mean, I do think, I do think the, the nominations road is going the to have the Democrats the playing as much majority hardball as the Republicans did. They want to galvanize this vote, which will probably come in September now, mm-hmm. for the election in the hopes that they can end up with the majority in the Senate. And if they do end up with the majority in the Senate, they're going to blockade for sure. Trump's nominees for the rest of the term, mm-hmm. which is which is really or, it's or a continuation, require, if not exclusive. Or require what every other president's had to do, which is talk with the other side for your nominations. Right? It wasn't until 2013 that we've had a situation where you didn't at least have to talk to the other side yeah. about your nominations. Yeah. Well, that's tr- well, right. I mean, save before the era of filibustering judges, right? But you're right. I mean, it was it was 
Right, minority input was necessary, but I don't think that's even going to be good enough. I don't think that's what the liberal base is going to want now, is that Trump comes up with some moderate who fits in in some Sandra Day or Connor way. It does, yeah, it wouldn't even matter. I don't even think that matters. I think you're looking at if the Democrats take have control of the Senate and the 116th Congress, no Supreme Court judges, period. Oh, right? yeah, no, no sure. Supreme Court well, and, and isn't it interesting to think about how, going back to 2008 again, uh, there was a bunch of public opinion research around the 2000, excuse me, not 2008, 2014, mm-hmm. as I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago. Sure. There was a bunch of uh, public uh, data to show in 14 that it was perhaps the least mobilized election that we had seen in a very long time, general or midterm, because the left, well, okay, so the right was beginning to view, okay, well, even if we take over the Senate, we were made all these promises when we took over the House, we didn't get any of them, so what does it really matter if we take the Senate? Obama's still in office. So there was not huge enthusiasm on the right, even though it wound up being a very good cycle for for Republicans. On the left, they're thinking, well, basically, we have been obstructed and, and stymied ever since Republicans took back the House in 10, and this is the last two years of a lame duck presidency anyway. Why does it matter? So there was such, historically, by modern standards, low turnout in 2014 that it obscured the broader argument that, A, the courts matter. So when we talk about the conventional wisdom that Republicans care more about the courts than do Democrats, I think that's well established. But I think as a corollary, the other piece of conventional wisdom is that Republicans traditionally care much more about midterms than do Democrats, right? The Republican base turns out in midterms in a way that the Democratic base traditionally, at least in the modern era, does not. Or the other way to look at it is Democrats care more about the presidential, and so they don't vote. Yes. I mean, Republicans right. vote right. flat, the Democrats have right? Exactly. Yeah. But, but yes, it has the same outcome. Right. And so, and so now those things have sort of very neatly aligned, and you do wonder if there is to be something of a kind of a wholesale makeover of the democratic approach to elections. It's engineered around this idea of, yes, we need to put a far greater emphasis on the courts, but also, if you're a Democrat up this cycle, all you have to do to mobilize your base, or all you should have to say to mobilize your base is, hey, if you don't think midterms matter... Think about 2014, yeah, sure. because totally. we'd probably have yeah. Hillary Clinton or president right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, I, I should just put like a caveat that it's hard to predict these things that are like developing right now. I mean, I do think that the trend that like, you know, Democrats weren't as focused on the, the courts as the Republicans is absolutely true. But the, the, there's this also the, the trend that they're with their anti-Trump message, they're getting a much broader spectrum. Uh, uh, part of the political spectrum than they would if they just focus on the Supreme Court. And to be sure, we have like a base um, get you know the, the the electoral strategy is increasingly one of each side getting out its base. But if the Democrats start to you know embrace a court-based strategy, they are you know giving up uh, you know uh, people who are not as hard left. I mean maybe that's an acceptable bargain for them. Um, but it's also kind of interesting in an environment where. Uh, they're not. They seem to be opposing Trump without a whole lot of policy specifics behind it. Yeah. You know, um, you know that's. And you got to be something with something. You got to. You, you got to talk about something. Um, and and while at the same time, uh, party leadership is very shy about saying the big I word. You know, they want to impo- oppose Trump, but they don't want to say impeachment. Um, I don't know. I mean, I. I guess increasingly we're we're in an environment where we're not we're talking less about policy. I mean, I'm kind of amazed that, you know, uh, they haven't been able to corral Trump to talk more about tax cuts. Mm-hmm. Um, for Wait a minute, example. was there a press conference today? <laughs> oh, I don't remember. It was Infrastructure Week again. <laughs> it's always oh, Infrastructure Jesus. Week, man. Eternal <laughs> Infrastructure. Well, and, and yeah, I think obviously. I'm sorry, I just covered like a lot of topics yeah. with that statement. Well, no, but, but to, go but to for the it. Point, I mean, 
And to your point, Mark, about beating something with something, that's why I think the initial reaction we saw this week from Democrats it, in response to McConnell and obviously to the Kennedy retirement, which was to point out the, the, the alleged hypocrisy of McConnell not bringing up a, a, a nominee for the Supreme Court in election year 2016, but happy to bring it up in 2018, even if you believe that there's an inconsistency there and that there's hypocrisy on the part of McConnell, how many votes does that mobilize? Right. I just don't think it works, right? The, making these strategic, structural, procedural arguments don't really right. work. I do think if Democrats want to talk about policy, they should be talking about abortion policy. They should be talking about spending. They should be talking about... Uh, the potential, although I think it's very, very, very far-fetched, of overturning the Oberfeld decision. I think that there's a lot of things that Democrats could not only speak to their base with, but also speak to the center I of agree. the electorate with on policies that the Supreme Court would have direct implications for. You, you can see this in Republican senators right now who are running away from reporters mm-hmm. asking them about abortion policy and about their position on Roe being overturned. Is that, you know, Republicans have, and Democrats too, have raised a ton of money on this over the years and put forth all sorts of messaging-style you know, bills in the state legislatures that are ultimately struck down by the courts or, you know, are winnowed by the courts. And that a day where Roe is overturned or might be overturned because of a nominee creates a new abortion politics that no one knows where it's going. Mm-hmm. And I, I, w- I would wager that even if Roe were overturned, you wouldn't quite see what a lot of people think left and right would happen to abortion in the states. And I think it terrifies a lot of politicians, particularly Republicans, about having to fight out Roe in the legislative zone. Uh, because of the implications of that from their base and from moderates. And so, I, I mean, I, I, I saw that Murkowski and Collins both just, like, ducked into elevators yeah. as soon as the question was asked. And that's, and that's the point. Like, if you, that, that's exactly the point. If you are a member of the activist left right now right. and you want to throw a scare into Collins, Murkowski at all, mm-hmm. don't make this about process. Don't make it about procedure. Right? Like, right. nobody cares. Mitch McConnell right. does not care about your feelings, about his hypocrisy <laughs> and, and his alleged... Nor, nor do any swing voters. Right, nor do any swing voters. Like, you, you make this squarely about issues that you think that those senators are likely to be squeamish on starting with abortion right. no especially with those two in particular there's yeah. no question about right. it yeah. and, well, i uh, mean their, their stance on you know protecting planned parenthood funding in the attempt to appeal the aca was you know pretty clear mm-hmm. so and i mean i i also you know there there was also this i think there's this idea again going back to the coalition for for these nominees in the senate there's this idea that jeff flake or bob corker or john mccain are going to come and be the thorn in the side of the republican caucus and i just don't believe that on this sort of issue it, it seems Completely far-fetched. I think Flake has already shot that down. I don't think McCain's coming back. And Corker, I expect the exact same from that. This is a coalition on an issue like Supreme Court justices that is not likely to crack. Um, Murkowski and Collins aren't going to like it, and they're going to face tough questions, and there's going to be people angry at them over voting this way, but in the end, I don't see them. I don't see them budging. Oh, go ahead. I no, was going to pivot something else. Yeah, well, just quickly. Yeah, it's become very in vogue whenever Jeff Flake tweets something critical of the president to see right. the entire left explode. It's like, why don't right. you do something, right? right. Yeah. And while I am sympathetic to the, the passion there, and I understand why, why, why folks would actually like to see the legislative branch serve as more of a check and less as a Twitter Jiminy Cricket on the shoulder speaking conscious into President Trump's ear, <laughs> Jeff Flake is not going to prove any kind of a point as a lifelong conservative by stopping a conservative judge being placed on the Supreme Court. Like, that does nothing for him. It's just, it's not, you need to understand how these people operate and and, and what gets them out of bed in the morning. Jeff Flake has significant differences. Uh, I think rhetorically, certainly, stylistically, and in some cases, substantively and on policy with this president. But if the president nominates an originalist, a conservative, who is ideologically aligned with the right, 
Jeff Flake is not going to throw up a roadblock just to show woke Twitter that he is really serious about checks and balances. Right. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, well, I think I think you're right. I think he's far closely more closely aligned than Trump and what you know some of his uh, big pronouncements might make people assume. I mean, I do think Collins and Murkowski on this issue really are quite different, and the fact that neither of one of them is up for re-election and the political environment is in a high level of flux right now, I yeah. think makes them both legitimate question marks. Yeah, I mean, I think a, a much better question, a much better spot for the Democrats to be uh, working on this is exactly where Jackie Rosen was an hour after this came out, where she was screaming left and right about how Dean Heller is, you know, going to try and right. overturn over Sweden's vote. Right. And I'm sure Kristen Sinema is going to be on the same path with Martha McSally and Ward and Arpaio and... And those are the places for the Democrats and the electoral outcomes of this nomination uh, where things actually matter, not in actually trying to block the nomination. Did you see, I saw this quickly on Twitter too, which was that um, House Republicans are now concerned because all the money yes. now is going to go into the Senate Republican right. coffers to deal with the mm. courts, and all of a sudden they're going to be left high and dry? Well, they've got, I think, plenty of money. I don't think money is going to be the issue for House Republicans. I really don't. I mean, I, Ryan has raised a ton. Team Ryan has raised a ton. The NRCC is doing fine. The joint McCarthy-Pence operation has raised boatloads. I don't think money is going to be the issue for Republicans. I really don't. I mean, think back to 10. Democrats had plenty of money in 10, right? Money was not why Democrats lost the House in such lopsided fashion. Yeah, it was enthusiasm. Yeah. I mean, one base was super fired up the other wasn't and you had basically every independent voter in the country however shrinking that slice of the electorate is they seem to all break one way i don't know if you see any sort of a similar wave dynamic taking shape this fall i personally don't at least at this point i think yeah. everything is sort of in flux to you to your point a minute ago laura but um i don't think money is going to be the republicans issue but it does certainly i'm sure give Ryan and McCarthy and Scalise and their entire team heartburn knowing now that all of the big donors are going to be focusing their fire on the Senate side and trying to get another, uh, you know, confirmation through. Well, and not only do they, 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 you know, are they hurting from a lack of enthusiasm, but like the, the tax cut historically has been something that people have done very clear messaging on as Republicans and have done a lot of, you know, Mayhewian credit claiming. Um, uh, and, you know, not only has the president uh, refused to uh, do the sort of beating of the drum of this thing that the party leaders would want, um, but, you know, this thing has, there are a number of different problems with the bills um, that would, are, are going to cause electoral problems, forget about policy problems, are going to cause electoral problems for them. Um, you know, like churches are going to be paying some taxes, um, for the first time, because there's a 21 percent, um, you know, tax on like fringe benefit for employees, and all of these people are like, wait, wait, no, no, but we're the special people who don't. We are the chosen ones who don't pay that kind of tax. Um, uh, and for the first time, you have you know Republicans who have an anti-tax coalition building and electoral strategy, putting together a tax cut uh, super quickly, I might add, uh, that makes fellow Republicans electorally vulnerable you know you're, you had these blue state republicans who had to vote against it because it went after the state and local tax oh, right. exemption right. and you didn't pick um, up a single democrat in the process and you knew and you know right. usually they tried it they try to expand their mad margins they they right. consciously chose to put together a tax bill uh, that would repel Democrats and some Republicans. That is historically unusual mm -hmm. since the Republican Party adopted an anti-tax position. That's really 
kind of bananas. And now that it's law, they're not even selling it, right? I mean, they're, exactly. They're, they're, they're trying. They're, I mean, here and there. There's some but noise. But it's, it's not going to have a lot of bang noise. for them but there's just, but, there's, but, but there's no sustained effort. Yeah. And, and I think that in part owes to the gentleman at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Yes. Right? Yes. That's exactly. where that has to come from. Well, but and even, the polls on it are dropping, too. Yeah, well, and I think, obviously, like... The, the, it seems as though they've had a couple of, uh, of instances where there's been, you know, a week, week and a half, two weeks of, of sustained messaging and the polling numbers tick up and there are news stories around the country that they'll blast out and things look up. And then the message just gets totally derailed, whether it's trade or whether it's North Korea or children separated from parents at the border, whatever it might be. And you can just hear the heads hitting the desk inside the leadership <laughs> office because it's just, you know, these, these guys, they know that they didn't pass a perfect product, but a lot of them think that it's good enough right. that they failed on repealing Obamacare right. and that they feel like with judges flying through the Senate, with some deregulatory measures and with a tax bill in place, that that should be enough in, in concert with a booming economy or at least, a, you know, a right. very healthy growing healthy. economy, yeah. that, it, yeah. that the fundamentals really should be in their favor. And every day we are spending talking about anything other than, than the strong economy and those fundamentals is a day that's good for the Democratic yep. Party. Yeah. I think that's right. We have reached the 40-minute mark of two uh, beers in, and so we need to wrap up so we can go around the table with any parting shots. I'll do mine first. Joe Crowley lost his primary in New York 14. Uh, everyone's wondering how this is going to affect the leadership contest on the Democratic side. Is this good for Pelosi? Is this bad for Pelosi? I think this is bad for Pelosi. Uh, a lot of people said, well, Crowley's out of the way now. Crowley was your main threat. I don't see that at all. Crowley was an establishment person who was only going to step in if Pelosi already was going to step down and wanted to name him the replacement. Him losing throws things in the flux. It opens a leadership spot. You already got people talking about it. And I think it's also a signal that you might have more discontent on the way. If you end up with 20 or 30 uh, centrists who had to vote against Pelosi in their campaigns or say they're going to vote Pelosi, and now you have a bunch of left progressives we're going to say the same thing. I think uh, it's going to be very difficult for her to hold on, or at least more difficult. Now, take that with a grain of salt. I've bet against her since 2010. I've been wrong every, <laughs> every, every single time. Yeah, so she may bet. survive, but it's, it's very bet. hard for me to picture her surviving and the rest of the leadership falling, and I think at a bare minimum the rest of the leadership's falling. Laura? Sure. No, I think you're correct to, to highlight the um, divisions within the Democratic Party, which doesn't get in as much press as it should, but will soon enough. Um, no, I think the question is, is often like, you know, you criticize a party leader of choice, whether that's uh, Pelosi or, or Ryan, uh, for, um, I don't know, a, a lack of leadership or success, uh, however defined. Um, but the question is, if not them, then, if not them, who? And I think we're going to see this with Ryan, too. I mean, I think people should be thinking about, well, if we're being critical of him, and, and we are uh, within context, uh, what happens if either McCarthy or Scalise uh, picks up that gavel uh, or picks up that leadership position? Um, which is a, a real question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, well, first of all, this has been fun, guys. Thank you so much for having me. And I can't believe we're 40 minutes in. We, I know, we just got started. Congress three beers in at yeah. this point. Is that we're, correct? We're, we're, Congress three uh, beers in? Two and a half hit, beers in. Hit me, man. What the fuck? <laughs> so, uh, so I think that, speaking of the party leadership, what makes this cycle so compelling and so unique is that you're looking straight down the barrel of major disruption in both parties' leadership structures after November. I, I think all of this is going to be defined by the margins. And by that, what I mean is that for Nancy Pelosi or Kevin McCarthy to maintain the status quo in their conference, which is to say that for Nancy Pelosi to become a speaker if Democrats win the majority, or for Kevin McCarthy to become speaker and slide up one spot if Republicans hold the majority, 
I think that for both of them, you're looking at a bare minimum margin of 10 or 12 votes, needing 10 or 12 vote cushion. So for Nancy Pelosi, that means that Democrats are going to have to win back 35 plus seats for her to have a chance. I think if she has a margin of only, you know, eight, nine votes, I don't think it's possible for her to, to maintain the speakership. I really don't mathematically. Same thing goes for Kevin McCarthy. I think that there are enough members of the House Freedom Caucus who have already committed to one another privately behind closed doors that they will never vote for Kevin McCarthy as speaker. Okay. And, so and, good. And, and so, again, if McCarthy has a cushion of 12 plus, and that means Republicans only lose, you know, maybe 9, 10, 11 seats, I think there's a chance for McCarthy to, 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 to uh, ascend to the speakership, to win the promotion that he failed to win a couple of years ago when Boehner left. But I think if it's, again, a margin of six, seven, eight votes or fewer, then I think you're looking at a speaker, Steve Scalise. It's very difficult for me to envision Kevin McCarthy pulling that kind of an inside straight unless he were able to strike a deal with either a Jordan or a Meadows to bring them along, bring them into the leadership, potentially make them the majority leader. But it's important to understand that Jordan specifically and Meadows to a slightly lesser extent, these guys are so widely disliked across the House Republican Conference that I don't think Kevin McCarthy has the juice to drag one of these guys across the finish line with him. I can't see any scenario under which McCarthy would go to the conference and say, look, these guys have been holding me hostage. The only way they're going to give me the votes to become speaker is if you give the votes to Jordan or Meadows to become leader. I think the conference would revolt. I think it would be an all-out mutiny. I think it would be a meltdown before our very eyes. So I can't see that scenario playing out either. Mark? I'm going to go to different kind of numbers. Um, this week, the CBO finally came out with their long-term budget estimate for the next 40 years. Um, I recommend it to everybody. I know I'm a geek, but it's still an interesting reading. It's looking good, right? Yeah. <laughs> just, just exactly. How many beers does it take to make it look good? Boy, we're not there yet. More than three, it turns out. We're not there yet. How many licks? Um, so here's the basic deal. The basic deal is the tax cuts have not helped. Um, they're going to help. Surprise. They're going to help the, uh, the economy grow. The postcards. <laughs> They're going to help the economy grow for two years, but the long-term growth is going to stay at this 1.9% uh, per annum level. And that's just not going to be enough to get us out of this devil because we're also increasing debt at a faster rate than we were before the tax uh, reform went into effect, mainly because we're doing an awful lot more spending this year, too. So Even with a unified Republican government? Go figure. And what's going to be interesting, what I'm going to continue again. to watch is coming towards this election, listening to the budget hawk voters and trying to figure out where the heck are they going to go, right? No, and naturally, they go to the Republicans. They cut budgets. Well, right now, they're obviously not cutting budgets. So that leaves them with the Democrats. Well, they're not going to vote for the Democrats because the Democrats are obviously tax and spend people. So that's not going to help the budget. So then they have to go to the Republicans. Well, they can't go to the Republicans. I mean, this is kind of the princess bride. Well, I clearly can't pick the wine in front of me, and I clearly can't pick the wine in front of you. The difficulty is both wines are poisoned, and the taxpayer is the one who's going to take the hit. Yeah, I mean, the only, we've seen now for a full generation, the only combination of government that even approaches sort of budget sanity is a Republican Congress and Democratic president seems to create the yeah. atmosphere where people are interested in in uh, some sort of fiscal austerity, if that's your goal. Which look a at lot the, people isn't look at the late 90s for yeah. your latest example of that. Okay, well, uh, we've come to the end here of Congress Two Beers In. Thank you, Tim Alberta, for joining us. This was awesome. You can catch Tim at Tim Alberta on Twitter. And, uh, of course, is it Tim Alberta? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah Tim yeah. Alberta. And uh, 
in Politico magazine, where he is sure to write another wonderful feature soon. Uh, you can catch us at congress 2 in at gmail.com. That's congress, the number two, beersin at gmail.com. Send us anything you want, fan mail, questions, beer recommendations, we'll take it all. And we'll see you next time on Congress 2 Beers In.